0: Hey guys, before we get started today, I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about Ladder. Ladder is a sports nutrition brand that is seeking to change the way that supplements are made. They've worked with top scientists to try to formulate a line of clean performance products. Unlike other supplements out there, every batch is tested by a third party to to verify the highest standards of quality and safety. All of their products are certified for sport by the NSF, which is the gold standard for quality in the sports nutrition and supplement business. So you know that they're serious about quality and performance. I've been able to sample a few of their products recently. They have a bunch of very cool products, including a pre-workout supplement that is meant to help boost your energy levels to prepare for your workouts. There is a hydration supplement that you can mix in with water and just have during your workout, whether you're on the run or in the gym or whatever that is. What my family and I have really been enjoying so far is their protein products. They have a whey protein and a plant protein supplement that's a powder that you mix in with your daily shake. They're vanilla flavored or chocolate flavored and they help give a little extra kick to your nutritional shake. So we've enjoyed mixing those in to our shakes and giving a real boost in terms of both flavor and nutrition. Ladder's goal is to help you unlock your best in any situation. So what that means right now is access to special offers and expert advice from their online community. You can use the code Better Everyday for 30% off everything sitewide at ladder.sport. That's better Everyday, B-E-T-T-E-R-E-V-E-R-Y-D-A-Y, for 30% off at ladder, L-A-D-D-E-R, dot sport. And thank you to Ladder for sponsoring this episode. Hello and welcome to The Paint Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I'm your host and I am thrilled to be joined again today by a very good friend of mine for his second official time on the show, third time in in reality, but the second time you'll all be able to hear it. Uh, He is the former head cross country and track coach at Rutgers Camden. He is formerly the head coach of the U.S. Marine Corps Elite Marathon team. He's the author of Running Anatomy, which is a book that we've discussed on the podcast before. And his current project is a remake of The Brady Bunch that I believe is premiering on Bravo in 2021. Uh, Joe Puleo, welcome back to the Pain Cave.
1: Thanks, man. Great to be back. Great to talk to you. And um, we're just remodeling the interior of the house so that it looks like um, The Brady Bunch. Yeah, I, saw, I saw that
0: episode, the, the, yes. the remake. Yeah. Right. Yes. When, when yep. do you when do you throw the football in somebody's face? Is that coming up?
1: <laughs> yes, and we're trying to find. We have three dogs, but none of them look like Tiger. <laughs> so we're we're trying to acquire one of those. And uh, so I get asked all the time. We have a for any of the listeners. We uh, my fiance and I have a blended family, so we have six kids together. And everyone says, "Oh, you're the Brady Bunch," and I always say, "Yeah, without the station wagon." And Jen always replies, "The bigger problem is we don't have Alice." <laughs> You know, and living in right now with with six kids um could you use could an some, Alice, oh, we could use multiple Alice's, yeah, so i mean we we have a menagerie we decided I don't know if you know this we we got chickens, oh no so, really, yeah, so we have eleven chicks in the dining room <laughs> raising before we can put them outside into the coop um we have three dogs uh and we we've acquired um uh, partial, uh, responsibility for a horse. Oh my gosh. Yes. So my uncle used to race thoroughbreds, which my two favorite sports aside from track and field are boxing and thoroughbred racing.
0: So, so yeah. The, and they, those kind of go together, I think in the kind of the lore of American sports history.
1: Totally. It's the, especially since we're talking about books. Um, yes. there are some incredible books written on horse racing and boxing one of my favorite boxing books is called the devil inside i think it was a biography of Sonny listen by nick Toshis. i've heard of that i haven't
0: read it but i've heard of it yeah
1: absolutely phenomenal i just i just posted i do the i don't know if you saw this i do these like mini book reviews yeah i just saw one
0: the other day where you had like four or five up there
1: exactly and one of them was a novel by toshis who i think i wrote I'm not really sure half the time what that I understand what the hell he's talking about. He, he's a lunatic. He's passed away, he passed away last year. But um, when he's good, it, the writing is incredible, and the Sonny Liston biography is phenomenal.
0: So I was, um, growing up, my, my dad's always been into horses, not so much thoroughbreds as like quarter horses and stuff, but I, I got, I was really into horses both, you know, I read a ton of Westerns. And I read a ton of thoroughbred books, so some novels and a few um, nonfiction books and stuff like that. I never got into the boxing literature, but uh, horses and horse racing for sure. Really rich literary uh, tradition for sure, and journalistic your, as well.
1: What's your favorite Western book? Oh,
0: mm. uh, it would have to be something by Zane Grey. I'd have to go back okay. and I'd have to go back and it's been a long time.
1: Did you ever read Cimarron? No, I read it in like eighth grade and it stuck with me really forever I think it i i don't know if this is accurate. I think the author was a female. I want to say it was like Edna Ferber or something like that, but I just vaguely remember that book huh. um I'm sure someone who's listening probably knows that I totally got it wrong, but uh that is stuck with
0: me one of my I, I mean I remember the the one that I read over and over when I was a kid, not a western but a thoroughbred book was um now I don't even remember what it was called, but it was about Manowar. Uh, it was okay. It was a, like a fictionalized history, you know, like a historical fiction about Manowar. Yes, uh, right. like told through the eyes of like a, a fictional stable boy. Um, oh, it was so good. I, I must have read that fifteen times. And I mean, you know, Sea nowadays, obviously a great book. Correct. Um, anyway, we're a little off track, me? but kind of on track. Go on.
1: No, do you know that? So every so again, I love the liter literary. Like the classic articles about mm-hmm. horse racing, do you know Man of War is is pretty much considered the top horse
0: of all above time? Yeah. Secretar- of, yep.
1: Above Secretariat. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's mild recency bias because I grew up with Secretariat. Right. Um, my favorite horse of all time was Alidar. Alidar it was finis- great. It finished second to Affirmed in all three all- Triple Crown all races three yep. to- by a Ooh, nose I- most times. Exactly. I think it over the course of the three races it lost by less than five lengths. Total. And three yeah. triple it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I love the I'd love the I love the, the silks. The blue, I think it was blue, white, and red. The blue and gorgeous.
0: white. Yep. Oh, it's beautiful. There you go. Secretary had a similar uh color palette as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That would um uh, yeah, we can do this forever.
0: <laughs> All right. So as you said, Joe, we're we're, we're gonna continue our series of Kind of stuff to do during quarantine, as we, we've been talking. We, uh, we did, Phil and I did our top running movies of all time a few weeks back, and we've been doing some fantasy drafts, and we're going to be doing some other drafts, and, and I wanted to have you on as probably the most well-read and literary person I know. Uh, I will say that, that I'm going to say that you're my second choice for this. I did email Malcolm Gladwell to see if he would come on. Uh, I've yet to hear a response, so I figured we'd just go ahead <laughs> Jay, so I have a similar
1: story. I have a similar anecdote that I'm going to relay to you Join okay, this. Uh, not about Malcolm Gladwell, but about the same idea about cold, cold emailing someone. Uh-huh. In regard to a project, so yeah, Yeah. it's hilarious.
0: Yeah, so he, I mean, he's obviously, he's a big runner too, and actually he he has a house up near here, so I I thought maybe if I snuck something in, I could get a response. I haven't heard back, so uh, I figured we'd go ahead and do this now. Um, But no, I'm I'm psyched to do this with you. We're going to go through our top running books. I know people have burned their way through Netflix and movies and all kinds of stuff, and hopefully we're getting to the point where we're going to be interested in reading some stuff. You've been reading a lot during the quarantine, I know, from your posts. I mean, in the last six weeks, how many books have you gone through? Not, not running books. I'm just saying books in general. Just ball, uh, so ballpark it.
1: I've probably read – so not related to doing research – so I'm doing. I actually I'm presenting to the National Strength Coaches Association, Strength Conditioning Association yep. next month on a virtual. So I've been doing all kinds of article research. So I've okay. been um, I've been reading journal articles out the wazoo, but b- books probably almost a dozen.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. So about two yeah. a week. That's awesome. Yeah, I
1: I keep you know I juggle. Um, fiction nonfiction poetry pretty consistently so it keeps it fresh so i don't get stuck in like at
0: one time are you rotating between them and like just picking up what's based on your mood
1: i have a queue on my table of Uh approximately a half dozen books at any one time right and then um my this is odd but i have a huge bookcase out in the garage and I have a section of books that I haven't read. So right. I'll go out there and just rotate every couple of weeks. I bring more in and right, put right. Out the, the red ones out. But I usually have a queue. So right now, I have Michael Chabon is on the um, – I'm reading, finishing up uh, Manhood for Amateurs.
0: Oh, that's a great one. I love I Chabon.
1: Have a, I have a – yeah, he's ridiculously skilled. And then I have a, a really weird book from it's a long time ago. It's, it's called Intention. It's the concept of intention. It's like philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have uh, why zebras don't get ulcers. Um, it's about stress related diseases and coping.
0: Mm. Oh, apropos for the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. So and then um and I'm trying to think. I just polished off a bunch of novels so I have to go restock that pile.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm like uh right. I try and rotate through like fiction, nonfiction and running stuff and I try not to do like I I can't read more than one book at a time. Like once I start on something, I have to kind of blast through whatever that uh, is. Uh, yeah. So I try and so my last three have been um, I had a, a um, I just finished last night a biography of uh, Scott Fisher the mountain climber, which was oh right it was okay. okay. Uh, and before that I had read oh I just I I read uh, Springsteen's autobiography which
1: oh that was so good it was,
0: it was re- yeah it was really good.
1: Uh, it that was, was so. Good. That was phenomenal.
0: Yeah, uh, not the best Springsteen book I've ever read. I've read some really good ones, but uh, it was it was excellent. And the stuff yeah. where he really, I, I loved the old stories. I mean, the 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 second half of the book I, I didn't really need. Although his his uh, description of his uh, marriage with Patty Scalfa was was interesting, and and there was some really good insightful stuff. But just some of the old stories about the shit that they pulled in the old days were great. And then Have I, I ever, just read oh, um, sorry. I just read a book called uh, Wait Till Next Year, which was a a uh, collaboration between Mike Lupica and William Goldman about it was like a year in New York sports in 1987 where it like it starts out you know the Mets are defending the World Series title and Dwight Gooden gets suspended for cocaine and Mm -hmm. uh, Goldman is just one of my favorite writers ever so he's writing from like the the fans perspective and then Lupica is giving the the um, the sports writers perspective it's it's really really good
1: that that does sound good I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up when we're done. Yeah. So did you ever get uh or have listened to Patty Sialfa's uh heard, uh solo album? No. It's called Rumble Doll. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. It's actually when it came out, I was like, holy crap, like you gotta be kidding me. Yeah. It's like ridiculously good album. Yeah, she's I mean super it's talented. Twenty like some year twenty-five years old, but it's fantastic.
0: All right, I'll go back and listen to that one. There you go. All right. So we're going to do we're going to we're going to confine our discussion or the most for the most part, I guess. I'm sure we'll go (laughs) off on tangents as we're already 20 minutes in. But uh, we're going to we're going to talk about our favorite running books today. And we've split those up into a few different categories, because when we talk about running books, there's, you know, a wide range. And and we do want to touch on some. Kind of sciencey training books and we want to touch on some fiction and some nonfiction. so i i we split it up by a few categories and i hopefully we have our, our favorites in each of those although some of them are, are certainly um i think deeper than others in terms of where yes. the real quality is so the the category how did let, i'm gonna have you run this a little bit because you had split up the categories even a little mm-hmm. bit more than than i had uh yeah. i had gone with so I mean, we have one for fiction, I think fiction, and then we have a category of just uh, science or science and or training books. Uh, Those are fairly self-explanatory. Then the other, the non-sciencey, non-training, non-fiction falls into a couple of different categories. I mean, you can say biography, autobiography, or memoir, and then there's kind of just like stories you know uh, yep. uh surrounding events or surrounding uh groups or whatever that is so uh, i think we we might split it up in those three ways is that how you wanted to do it
1: that's how i did it okay um so yeah i mean that, i mean that kind of definition is relatively arbitrary because some people call what we would call like autobiography or biography memoir right um, so I mean, it's just basically going to be the story of themselves. Yes, and then that I put nonfiction stories, just like writing about a certain event, like a right. particular race yep. or whatever. Yeah, so.
0: good. Okay. So and and just when it, when you're going through this and kind of categorizing them and, and picking your favorites, did you have a, a category? Like, I, there's one category, the the category that I tend to gravitate to the most, I think, is that that last one is is. People who weren't involved in an event uh, writing about it, like the you know the the nonfiction running from an outsider's perspective,
1: by far the largest category, by far.
0: And, so the yeah. novel
1: category is is paltry. Yes, there's about a handful of good books, and you you know I'm still I'm editing mine, my yes. novel. So I, if you don't mind, I wanted to read a paragraph later when we get there. Oh, that'd be great. Um, but it's really paltry, so we can blow through that in about two and a half minutes at the end.
0: Okay. Do you want to? Uh, you want to?
1: start where do you want to start? So, I I just started with this the larger category, this sort of the nonfiction okay. the story. Let's start and, there. That's um, my favorite. And Jay, I didn't do any like ones that I liked the most. I did ones that I remembered immediately, and then a few that I was looked in my library and was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. That's awesome. Okay. So I I started with uh, Duel in the Sun by John. Yeah, I John have that Ray. on my list and the 1982 Boston Marathon with Salazar versus Beards.
0: That is a great great book. I have that number 4 on my list in this in this category. And and a an event that I didn't know that much. I like, you know, heard rumors of it or or you know, just these apocryphal stories, but to to read just the the amount of work and and preparation that went into it for both of these guys. Um, and, and he actually spins it forward and you, you kind of learn a little bit about how much that race took out of each of those guys and how their lives were, you know, in some ways, never the same afterwards for both Beardsley and Salazar. Uh, this was, I think the pinnacle of, of their career, you could argue for both of them and, ne- and neither of them were really the same afterwards.
1: So I think that's a great insight and a great comment by you. And I have an anecdote, um, so when I was part of a New Balance uh, International Advisory Committee in the early two thousands, we were we volunteered to do it. There was about eight running store owners in the world who got invited to this, and they would fly us into Boston two times a year, and we would meet with every department in in running, marketing, shoe design, shoe construction. We even went to the their uh, manufacturing plant um, right by their headquarters in uh, outside of Boston. Mm-hmm and we volunteer but they treated us wonderfully and one day after about a 10-hour day we were all exhausted it's about five o'clock we all want to go back to the hotel and either go to sleep before we or run before dinner um they um the the owner of the company jim davis so it's a privately held billion dollar company now so mr davis walks in and he says hey guys um I, I want to thank you so much, as always, for all your help. And I want to also offer this to you. And in walks Dick Beardsley, who at that point was being sponsored by New Balance. You know, this is 2003 right. or whatever. Right. And he sat down with us for like an hour and a half, and we just asked – we just talked to him like you and I are talking. Yeah. And I want to tell you something. There's a reason that Dick Beardsley ran that fast and then became addicted to opioids. Right after his that dude is all in like he can't not do something right all in
0: right it that's, was and that's the impression you get reading this book
1: it was the oddest and actually to be honest slightly uncomfortable to see someone reflecting on their life and going through some of the really dark periods that he went through post-running yeah and recognizing like he literally is the same person. He's just not using drugs or running 120 miles a week. <laughs> right. Like nothing. It's still there. Yeah. Like it was crazy. It was so clear and obvious. I don't know if it was obvious to him. But it was obvious to us. And We're like, whoa. This is some – and to understand what he had to do in 1982 in that race to get to the – almost to the finish line ahead of Salazar.
0: Right. Right.
1: You then you get it. You can see why he was capable. Well,
0: And Salazar in 82 was I mean, he was considered basically unbeatable. Uh, and I mean, Beardsley was a, an accomplished runner, but I, I don't think anyone had really given him a chance. But it's it's interesting. Right. I mean, the—the the, we talk a lot about and I think the last time we were on the show we, or you were on the show, we talked about you know, kind of the overlap of running and, and substance abuse and the addictive Correct. personality. And, and I mean, I think he exemplifies that. And he went he, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, went the other way from, uh, you know, running to addiction as as opposed to, you know, we, we always hear about the uplifting story of, you know, folks like Timmy Olson or whoever who, you know, kick their addiction with the help of yep. running and, and, you know, are still addicted to something, but at least it's something that's less harmful. And, and uh, yeah, he, he really went the other way. And I think that just goes to show how ingrained that kind of thing can be in somebody's psyche.
1: As an aside to that point, you could say that the addiction piece from Salazar never left, that he was always addicted to getting attention and that he was, he felt he right. got his most attention when he succeeded.
0: Right. And uh, right. A, an le- addiction to success. Exactly. Correct.
1: And the lengths that he went to that to achieve that as a runner and as a coach would be a fascinating study in like human psychology.
0: I can't, I, from his public persona, I can't imagine him ever um, opening up enough to, to or I, honestly, I don't, I don't, I've never met him, obviously but uh, yes. I, I, he does not seem like the kind of person who has the the self-insight to even allow that sort of examination.
1: So I'm going to be like a full disclosure. I thoroughly dislike uh, Alberto Salazar's behaviors as a coach, having coached at meets my athletes against his. Right. I've also met him multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, he struck me in... Always negative. I have very little positive to say about Roberto Salazar, except that he is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. He's a, in my estimation an absolute disaster, but fascinating in the train wreck.
0: Yeah, yeah, he was. And I don't
1: think he, I don't think he's a good coach. So that's one thing I could do. We we could do a podcast on this another time.
0: We should because he was I've he only, was like a formative a, as a kind of a nascent runner. Like I just I remember him like my dad used to run a few road races when I was younger. That's, uh, you know, a little bit how I got into the sport. And yes. he would go to Falmouth, you know, we went to Falmouth while we were, you know, on like family camping trips and my dad and his friends would run Falmouth and Salzar would win Falmouth most years. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was like a big deal because you'd be, you know, out and, and it was, you know, it was like going to the New York City Marathon or something on a small scale. And, and uh, yeah, so he was like a real uh, hero of mine. You know, from an athletic standpoint, when I was you know seven, eight years old, and uh, yeah, it it would be interesting for us to have a a longer conversation about him because he's a yeah, he's an interesting case study in something in something. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I don't know if you have your your books uh, kind of ranked out. I like to rank them out in like a five to one kind of thing. So I did have *Duel in the Sun* on my list at number four, and I'll go in reverse order. We can go back and forth. Number five for me in the uh, kind of nonfiction story category, is a book called C.C. Pyle's Amazing Foot Race. Uh, by, I do not know that. Oh, this is a good book. This is by, okay. by Jeff Williams. Um, okay. This is a, a historical uh, examination of the uh, kind of transcontinental racing in the early 20th century. And, okay. um, and there have been some fictional Uh, treatments of this kind of thing as well. But this is this is about the the I think the first one because there were two or three of them. But this book focuses on the first one. And it's basically, uh, you know, C.C. Pyle was this, you know, promoter. He was like a kind of a P.T. Barnum kind of figure and, you know, had um, promoted this transcontinental stage race from uh, I think it was I can't now, I can't remember if it was San Francisco or LA to New York, and uh, you know, housing these runners, and they were supposed to be passing through towns, and and they had all these different um, th- there was like a traveling circus that was going with them, and it was it was a really it was a a a very a, um, a very interesting look into like that culture of like the professional runner and where that crossed over with the amateurs. And just the promotion and, and the logistical nightmares that kind of accompanied this in the early 20th century. It was, uh, you know, like one part transcontinental run and like one part fire festival. It was hilarious.
1: That sounds fascinating. It's really fun. Yeah. Thank you for uh, I had no I had never heard of that.
0: Yeah, it's good.
1: So on my, well, on that's, my list. that's
0: the point. That's the point of this is that, you know, Absolutely. we're, we're going to come out with a couple of books that that. Uh, yeah. All right. What's your next one?
1: So in that vein I'm going to come up with one it's a little bit tan, tangential is that right tangential the right word? tangential thank you yeah to our, our topic but it's I think it fits so it's called Swoosh the unauthorized story of Nike and the men who played there
0: okay I've heard of this one and I have something it, similar on my list later but go on
1: so not only will you like this because it's a really great story of Nike mm mm-hmm. mhm so, one of the guys that uh, was featured in this book who worked for Nike also was one of the original partners of Rogue Brewery. Really? Yeah. Rob Strasser. So, three of the dudes from Nike, I guess, loved making, wanted to make beer and they ended up making Rogue. Oh, and wow. then Strasser went on to Adidas later. But so it's basically a story of like a big, big boys like you know children (laughs) who are like just had fun and did crazy shit and kind of had the audacity to think that they could take over the world which they ultimately did but exactly um, it's really fun like that when they get into the reebok period so paul fireman was the owner reebok yep and I have a really good story at another time about Paul Fireman giving me his American Express, I think it was his black card, to pl- go play golf in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> I, I, I rented clubs, I played <laughs> golf, I, we, I got clothes, we drank beer, and... Earl Weaver's brother, the former Baltimore manager uh, of the Orioles, Orioles manager. His brother was my caddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, and and like that was crazy. So that's a but. Um, they talk about the Reebok versus Nike war in the mid '80s when Reebok took over the number one spot. They were selling all those real soft leather, um, like aerobic type shoes. Yeah. And they took over, and Nike got. And yeah. then and well, Michael Jordan came along and that was the end right of that.
0: that was the end of that exactly
1: yeah but it's a great great book if you really want to have if you have any interest in how like he was created I totally recommend
0: it I love that is it like an oral history
1: it, it is oh, it goes back and it's it, they interview um they interviewed the different people who were involved um and I don't know you know I didn't write down who wrote it um but it was. I thought it was really good. It was mildly exhaustive. I mean, it's you know it was written in the early '90s, so right. there was plenty that went after that. But um, I, I would recommend if you because I know like you have an interest in shoes mm-hmm. and it all, and especially now with the beer connection, it all coalesces.
0: That's pretty cool. That's cool. You used to be a good golfer. What's speaking, that? I said you used to be a good golfer. Speaking of tangents, I used to play golf with Mike Piazza in high school. I remember.
1: Yes, and I I was okay. Um, I was probably my, I remember Goff more for every day, walking down a course with Mike and telling me he was going to be a pro baseball player. <laughs> <sometime>. <laughs> so yeah, and I did, I haven't played in years, but, uh, yeah, cause of the Brady bunch.
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> Next on my list in this category, a book I'm sure you've read, uh, called running with the Buffaloes by Chris Lear.
1: Uh, so I might have that. Now oh, again, I didn't rank them the way you did. Yeah. But I have that number three. Yep,
0: yeah, that's three for me as well. Uh, okay, Chris Lear at New Jersey, actually high school uh, running legend, um, and I think was a year ahead of me in high school. I, I do remember running against Chris once in high school and uh, getting lapped uh, pretty pretty easily. And what you uh, doing,
1: Pingree, what's is that? that right, Pingree? He was at Pingree. Wow, yeah. that's
0: a good call. Yeah,
1: yeah, just a long time ago, that, man.
0: That is a long time ago. So yeah. and. and uh, one of my good friends in college, one of my college teammates, was a teammate of his at Pingree, and then he was, of course, at Princeton with his brother Tim. Yep. So we would run against each other. Then he, you know, both he and Tim were injured a lot in college. Unfortunately, they were both great talents. And then I used to work with them at uh, at running camps and such. But anyway, Running with the Buffalo is a um, I want to say like a almost a seminal work of nonfiction in terms of collegiate cross country. This chronicles Adam Goucher's senior year cross-country season at the University of Colorado when he uh, won his national championship there. And Chris was kind of like an embedded journalist um, along with the team for, for the season and, and a lot of drama and, uh, you know, a really nice portrait of Mark Wetmore, who I think comes off pretty interestingly in the book. I think a lot of the, the Wetmore myth is kind of arising from that book, but... Um, you know, I think he's I think he's pretty fairly portrayed and, and he, he's a very compelling character by the end. And uh, Goucher is just I mean, if, if you get through that book, you're an Adam
1: Goucher fan for life, basically. Yes. Um, so I agree with all that. Um, a couple questions for you mm-hmm. is so after Lear wrote the book about Webb in his freshman year at Michigan. Sub four. Yep. It, it sort of went away. He went away. Webb or Lear? Lear. Yeah. Cause So th- this is an interesting thing. So you, everything you said about running with the Buffaloes is awesome. If you're into cross, you're into high school, college running, you're going to freaking love this book. Yeah. As a, as a writer, Chris was very good for not probably being a writer. I mean he was a very good writer. Although the book isn't written at a real high level, it captures all the excitement and joy that we got from cross country. Yes. I guess he just found something more lucrative because I can't imagine like he had he was on a trajectory to write some really cool books.
0: Yes. Uh, I don't know what happened. I lost touch with him. Yeah. I guess after I went to med school and that was kind of it. And, you know, that was a that was a tough book. I I don't have that one on my list in this category, although you certainly could have included it. Um, But, you know, it's an interesting book because I think I. The, the impression that I got by the end of reading it is that he didn't like Alan Webb very much. And Alan Webb comes off kind of like a little bit of a petulant kid in that book. And yeah. I think most of your um, sympathies by the end of that book lie with his teammates at Michigan and his coach at Michigan. Um, and uh, I think that I, I don't know if the book was necessarily as well received as Running with the Buffaloes, maybe because of that reason. I, I, it's he Webb in general, and particularly in that book, is just a hard person to root for.
1: I agree with you 100%. Everything you said is sort of the way I've interpreted it. And I know a little bit about the backstory from the coaching. You know, so Webb's coach was um, uh, (laughs) a running store assistant manager in Reston, Virginia. Right. Um, Scott. Scott, uh, Scott, what's his?
0: Yes, yes, yes.
1: So also, this is a crazy story that loops back into my life. So for all the listeners, this part of running is a really small world. So Drew Hunter's parents, I think, coached Webb when he was a freshman in Reston, and then they moved out to Loudon Valley, and they you know that's where Drew became famous. And I have a little connection with them because one of the athletes I coached went down to Loudon Valley. So it's kind of crazy, but long story is, Radsco was not a coach, right. And he ended up coaching Webb. And Webb went to Michigan under Coach Warhorst, who's, you know, probably like a Hall of Fame esque. Oh, yeah. Revered by the the people who ran for him at Michigan. Yes. Um, And they did not get along. And basically, it was because I think the backstory is that Radsko was always in Webb's ear. And that's the Um, impression
0: you get reading the book as well.
1: Right. And then when Webb turned pro, Webb was so freaking good, Jay. Right? Like, I mean, he's just—he was unbelievable. Oh,
0: the talent was in—I uh, mean, I—I I mean, Jim Ryan and then Webb. I guess if you want to go for you know high school collegiate Webb, talents,
1: I'd say Webb was better.
0: Maybe um, just in terms of pure, he, just in terms of pure talent.
1: He was—he had Ryan's that kind of like just grinding toughness. Yeah, and he was faster.
0: He was fast. He was so fast.
1: So. The part that really bothered me was one year, I think it was after Webb maybe had set the U.S. record, he runs a ten thousand at one of maybe Stanford to open up his outdoor season, and you're like, in what world does the best American miler run a ten thousand all in? I think he ran like twenty seven forties fifty. Right. What the hell are you doing? Right. Like, why would you? You're, what are you nuts? Like, maybe at the end of his career, you put, like, Sentrowitz is doing, transition up to the five. Right. Who the hell runs a 10 right. all in? That's abs- And at that point, you know that he has no idea what he's doing right. coaching Webb, and Webb has done this in spite of him. Right. Not, now, Webb may totally disagree if we, you ever get him on the podcast. He may say, oh, Ratsko is great. But as a, as a coach, understanding that. Webb can tell you whatever he wants to tell you. That was a massive mistake.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Okay. I agree. Sorry for that. I no, no. I, I 100% agree. I think. Yeah. Not that, look, Webb, I mean, an American record holder and, uh, you know, a, a, an amazing career, but I think did less with more than... than totally. Uh, Without a doubt. Yeah.
1: I would have loved to see them in the hands of someone who could both connect with him, but then also understood how to do this at a high level, and right. Radzko Rats- did not get that done.
0: Right, and I wonder what it was with Warhurst. I, well, like you said, I, I think right. Radzko didn't take enough of a backseat, and that yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, Warhurst is old was older. I mean, he's you know retired for probably a decade now. Probably, so he yep. was older. When, he was older when he got Webb, and maybe they just didn't connect. Right, you know, Radzko was still young. He's probably in his twenties.
0: Yeah, yeah. It would have been interesting to see him at another program and. If he Right, if he had wound up with somebody like a Wetmore who was a little younger or somebody he would have connected with a little bit more. Yep. Anyway. Uh, all right, what's your next on your list? I got a couple more in this category.
1: I'm going to throw a fun one at you. It's okay. It's called the, Lo- the Longest Race by Ed Ayers. Dev, you, do you know this? Why do I know Ed Ayers' name? He's the famous ultra runner. He's run like 600 ultras. He's, okay. He's probably in his... 80s now if he's still alive okay yeah so it's it focuses on the 2001 jfk 50 Hmm. and he uses ultra running as a metaphor for environmental sustainability oh wow dude it's a great book he's a good writer a really good writer um he's just it's super smart um it makes a ton of sense i just really liked it and i you know i'm not an ultra guy um. So, but the it just really resonated with me when I read it.
0: All right, I'm definitely putting that one down. The longest race,
1: the longest race. Ed Ayres, A Y R E S. Yeah, awesome. I think he tried to break a record. I think he was like in his maybe his 60s when he did it, and he was trying to break this 60 year old record. Okay. At JFK, at JFK, and then it was sort of a meditation on bigger, you know, bigger things outside of of running.
0: Okay, that's awesome. Um. I'll go with an ultra-running book for my next one as well, one that I'm sure you've read called Born to Run by Chris McDougall.
1: Uh, This is
0: going to be good. (laughs) This is uh, the story that launched – or the the book that launched the minimalist boom, I guess you could say, and I think is – well, let me just say that I I, f- I thought the the stuff about the minimalist shoes or whatever it was is the least interesting part of the book to me. I, I know that's what a lot of people gravitated towards, but um, the the, char- the the characters in the book who are you know all real life characters, obviously Scott Jurek and Caballo Blanco and uh, Jen Shelton and and you know was it Micah
1: True? Was Micah he True was uh, yeah. Caballo Blanco's. That was his yeah. real name. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And just spinning this tale of kind of you know, chasing down this, you know, what some thought was an apocryphal guy living among the Tarimara in in Mexico and um, the story of how he was able to bring Jurek to race against uh, some of these kind of legendary ultra runners. And then historically, the, the story that I wasn't really aware of was from the 80s when, uh, I think it was Reebok again, uh, brought some of them in to race at Leadville, and and they were battling with Ann Trason, and and some of the the legendary stories there about how some of these runners were uh, kind of marketed around and exploited a little bit, or maybe they felt exploited a little bit. And it's it's a really it's a, a very very exciting story, and there's a, a really cool section where he talks about some of the the studies that have linked evolutionarily the the role of long distance running to the the evolution of of uh mankind and and how we're kind of adapted for long distances and that sort of thing which I as a biologist I found really interesting so uh, it's a it's a great book i know you know it's it's a little bit cliched now and and like i said i think the the parts that focused on the or the, the part, the, the, the stuff about minimalism that, that people kind of focused on and, and ran wild with a little bit, I think, has done the book a disservice because the story is re- really, really great.
1: So, so this is a re- this is like, um, for lack of a better way of explaining, it, like a lightning rod uh, topic for me. Yeah. So for a um, lot of people, I think. Yeah. And and it's exactly for the reason that you've brought up. The story is awesome, and he is a really, really good storyteller. Oh yeah, he's yeah. got a great style. I know he just wrote about sort of a donkey and him. I don't, I didn't. I haven't it, but, read
0: it yet, but uh, it looks good. Yes.
1: Yeah, and he's like, he's just a really good storyteller. He seems to be like, kind of an interesting guy. I've literally have met him twice. I've heard him talk twice, mm-hmm. and each time I heard him talk, I wanted to stand up and be like, "Shut the f up." about biomechanics you have no i so you have no idea what you're talking about you've never done any research per se and the people that you farm that information out to to give it back gave you not good information (laughs) and you're and you're a shill for vibram for the five finger shoes, which ended up, they you know they had a class action. Lawsuit
0: right, they had to against. pay out a lawsuit. Exactly.
1: Everybody had to get like eighty six dollars. <laughs> you didn't even, I didn't even think you had to give a receipt. You just sent him a letter <laughs> saying, "I bought one of your shitty shoes." And, but um, so I struggle with that because when he's presented this information, he doesn't even a little bit later when it started, the pushback came. Right. He really refused to acknowledge that he may not really have it right. And he's never, as far as I know, put a, re- said, Hey, listen, I'm really sorry for promoting BS.
0: Right. Right. Um, well, and that's, struggle- I, I, I do wish he, I mean, look, I'm, I'm sure, right. Like you said, he, I'm sure he makes, you know, plenty of money from kind of promoting that aspect of it and that sort of thing. Uh, I, I, I really wish that wasn't the, the focus that people got out of it and, and you know, it's his, like, like you say, it's his own fault for kind of focusing on that aspect of it and marketing it that way. But you know, I, if you, if I, you eliminated that part from the book, it's, it's a great book.
1: So the, the, the I think in all honesty, my frustration is with literally with Chris McDougal mm-hmm. because so you and I are into running and track and field at like the atomic level, right? Chris McDougal is not. Chris McDougal is a writer. Right. And that's I mean that's and I struggle. I struggle because in a way, like, I want to be like, this isn't the guy that we want to (laughs) reward. But I also get the fact he's a really good storyteller. Yeah. You know, and then he does really good at it. And I think it's super that but you and I and other people understand where his limits are and we appreciate for the story. We're but right. many people didn't, right, and listened to what he was saying. So if you're going to write about running with a donkey and how that's changed your life, I think that's great. Right. I mean, if people want to buy donkeys because of it, you've got to live with that. <laughs> but you can't, you can't get into the realm of biomechanics at a deep level. Like, Jay, you're a doctor. You do research. I do research in all the things that I do. Right. You can't get into that world, like, and try to Give this information as even mildly knowledgeable, right. Unless you've really done some work in it,
0: right? Right. No, that's so a that, that's that's good point. And I
1: and mean, it's he's whole expert thing. Like clearly, yeah. you know, I don't think he was trying to say he was an expert, but people anointed him that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear right. you're an expert.
0: No, and and he goes into the. I mean, the whole conceit of the book is that he's not a runner and he doesn't like running, and he's kind of intrigued by this story. And and yeah. in the in the course of kind of, you know, running down this story, for lack of a better phrase, he he becomes a runner. Um, yes. And I thought and that's a that's a great hook. And that's, you know, as a as a journal, I mean, he's a journalist, he was writing for like outside magazine or whatever. And yep. as a journalist, that made sense. And, and it, you know, it, it really is a nice driver, especially for the first half of the book. Um, right. I think the problem is, and like you said, I don't think he asked for that necessarily. I think people anointed him as an expert just because of, you know, this reporting and If you want to criticize him for something, it's probably that he hasn't done enough to to
1: dispel that that notion, I guess, or just come out and say, hey, listen, this isn't my field of expertise. Right. Uh, I thought it'd be, you know, and I don't know, like, so is it self-awareness that prevents you from stating that? Or is it like, I still got to sell books? I don't really give a shit. Maybe it's
0: right. I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, I guess it's a cynical way to look at it if it's the second one, but maybe that's the case. But, you know, and. The other thing I would say about it is, um, you know, for all the faults, you know, biomechanically or whatever, I mean, it did lo- launch the minimalist movement, which I, you know, for the most part, I don't, I guess, partake in or, or whatever, you, however you want to phrase it. But I, I mean, and and you could speak to this better than than I could as, you know, a former shop owner, I guess both of us are, um, I, I feel like that, that movement or that moment in time did more to kind of move the development of shoe technology forward than anything else. I mean, the, you know, before that, before people started kind of demanding those sort of things from their shoes, shoes were all pretty much the same. I mean, there were little variations here and there, but, you know, we never talked about heel-toe drop or, you know, maximalist or minimalist or anything like that. And and the explosion of, of different styles and technologies that we see now is, is in large part due to the demand that came out of that book.
1: So that's an incredibly generous way (laughs) to look at it. And I actually, and I think it also has a, a lot, like what you just said has a lot of value. I agree with you. It was a catalyst for re-envisioning biomechanics. Right. So do you know that the, basically running biomechanics comes from a book in the sixties written by a podiatrist, Dr. Theodore Root. Right that it all stems from there yeah. nothing has changed so basically biomechanics weren't even examined they were just accepted that dr root had it correct so it was all feet based and really no one even challenged it and then all of a sudden especially in the past 15 years people discuss hips pelvic, lumbopelvic region right and how that affects biomechanics which is what i'm doing my research all th- that's what i do now mm-hmm. i just look at basically biomechanics feet hips every joint angle and muscles and how they interact and asymmetries so it's kind of fascinating and there are definitely things that weren't right about dr root what he thought mm-hmm. and i guess mcdougall sort of did create the catalyst to look at it so yeah yeah i agree with you.
0: yeah so anyway all right let's uh, i have one more in this category how many more do you have
1: I have plenty, but I'll give. I have two more. <laughs> two more. I'd like to talk about. Go ahead. Uh, so the next, this is this book is insane due to the the subject and the subject matter. Today we die a little.
0: I've heard of this. You know, I haven't read it.
1: It is it is the biography of um, Emil Zatopek. Yes. Who won the five and the ten and the marathon I, twice?
0: Yep. Two different Olympics. Fifty two and fifty six, maybe. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think that is correct. Or was it forty-eight and fifty-two? It might have been forty-eight right and fifty-two, right? Yeah, but long I story is—I think that's right. Yep. He won the Olympic marathon the first time he ever won a marathon after he had already won the ten and the five. Yep. But what's fascinating is so Zatopek pioneered the concept of interval training. Yep. And interval—this is this feeds into another of the science books. But interval training refers to the rest interval. The not necessarily the the, the distance rep. that you're
0: running right, yep,
1: correct, so Zadapec has done up to eighty times four hundred
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's who like so when you read once a runner, he did three <laughs> sets of twenty by uh, to reference another book, three sets of twenty by a because he wanted to torture himself. Zadapec had already done eighty, 80. by a hundred um years and years before that, yep. Crazy. So yep. the whole thing is, but it's just um, it's fascinating to see again what someone can make themselves do. And he pioneered that. So before the training was just, he sort of went out and ran, right. like he just kept running. It was um, Hard uh, bass. You know, he just kept running, right? And then Zadipak comes along and was like, "F that! I'm going to go run fast." He never did aerobic training. He didn't go out for like a five to eight mile run. He just ran fast all the time. He went out and did intervals. A lot I mean, of times he was injured. But he just kept crazy stories him. about
0: him like doing yeah. long runs in in military boots I, I in mean, the woods in the woods right I mean carrying Correct. his wife on his back for weight yep. training and stuff like that I, he was a
1: nut it's all accurate too the yeah. nutrition was miserable um he liked to drink beer um just a great story it's basically I look at so the the um Where the title comes from is, I think it was at the '56 Melbourne Olympics. He ran the marathon and he wasn't really in shape. He was old and for a runner and not overly fit. And he stood at the starting line of the marathon and made that statement. (laughs) Which I think is just, it encapsulates exactly what the book presented him (laughs) to be.
0: That's perfect. I love it. Yep. My last one in this category is a book called The Perfect Mile by Neil Bascombe.
1: Uh, number
0: four on my list. Okay, yes, yeah, so, uh, great, great story. This is kind of the secretariat of, uh, or not the secretariat, the sea biscuit of uh, distance running. I guess it's a, kind of a very similar feel where it's jumping around between three guys who are chasing the uh, the elusive four minute barrier in the early fifties. It uh, jumps between uh, Roger Bannister in England and Wes Santee in the U.S. and uh, John Landy in New Zealand, and uh, it's it's just a great work of kind of historical examination, I guess, and and uh, really, the, I, I found the most compelling character in the book to be Landy, actually, who was the one who really cared the most, and I think was devastated when Bannister was the one who got to the sub-four-minute mile before him. Yeah, another guy who was probably never the same after... You know, Bannister broke in and then after Bannister beat him at the Commonwealth Games later that year after they had both been under four. And I think yeah. Landy had retaken the world record. Um, it was a uh, I love that book so much.
1: I love when Landy would run in the cemetery. Yeah. Like like I've run in cemeteries because during snowstorms, they would get plowed. So I was in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I needed a place to run. And I said to the person at the motel, I said, is there a cemetery near here? And they're like, (laughs) what? (laughs) And I ran down the cemetery. It was plowed. So I just ran loops in this big cemetery, which is a weird story because about 15 years after that, I was in La-, La Crosse Wisconsin when my javelin thrower, team set to division 3 national record and I went and ran in the cemetery just you know just to remember that just to yeah that crazy that's awesome I love that weird part of life
0: <laughs> uh, let's finish off this category what's the last one you had
1: so um you'll, you you probably read it and um if you haven't I would recommend it but it's um uh, what I talk about when I talk about running. Okay,
0: so I had this in the uh, memoir category.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah. So we can. So it's. So uh, yeah, Hiroki, let's mo-
0: we'll move into that now.
1: Okay, Haruki Murakami, yep. who is a Japanese writer, who's considered the most famous, most skilled, best Japanese writer in the history of Japanese fiction. Right. And he came to writing as an adult. Yeah, I don't think he even started writing until in his mid thirties, um, which is one of the few famous novelist ever in the history of modern times that has come to novel writing that late. So here's my little aside that I mentioned earlier in our conversation. So, like you and Malcolm Gladwell, when I wrote my first book, Running Anatomy in 2010, I sent a Facebook message to Murakami asking him if he would write the foreword. Get out of here! That's awesome. No, no, because I figured, what's the worst thing that could happen? I don't right, get, a reply, you don't get which, a reply. Exactly. Which, which is what happened, but I um, right. Yeah.
0: That's so good. Uh, yes. This is this is a really this is a great book. It's it's. Uh, I don't use the word beautiful to describe writing a lot, but it is a beautifully written book. And yeah, it's it, it's very literary and, and you know, it, it's kind of moving. I really, I do like that one a lot. I've never really gotten into his fiction. I find it really hard.
1: Uh, I just read one a few years ago that was phenomenal. Yeah? It was, yeah uh i'll send you i'll text you the name okay them, I yeah that. but I... I didn't like the wind-up bird which is i think considered like his big i think the wind-up bird um but yeah this last one i really it was small it was like a novella and i really liked
0: it yeah maybe that's where i'll start because i've tried a couple of them just and i never i i I don't want to say impenetrable but i found them hard to really yeah i i agree yeah
1: no so un, unlike the unbearable uh, um uh, Loving the Time of Cholera, which I did not find <laughs> impenetrable. I do find Murakami's fiction impenetrable. <laughs> That's an inside joke for anyone who's listening. Yeah. Which exactly. we can tell that story at some other point. But um, <laughs> the thing about this book, Jay, the one thing I still remember is when he described when he had been hired by like a magazine to go to Athens and write about the uh, marathon, the original Olympic marathon and he literally jumped, he ran the marathon he ran all 26.2 and one of the guys in the van was like dude we don't have to do this. Like most people just run like a couple hundred yards and then they stop and we film it and then we're all good or we take pictures or whatever they're doing. And he's like, why would I do that? I'm just going to run the whole thing. But he had never run a marathon and he had no idea. It was like 120 degrees on the road in Athens.
0: <laughs> exactly. Like,
1: yeah. So that was the real funniest aside.
0: We are running super long. So why don't we take a break here and we'll come back in the next episode with some more of our favorite books about running.
1: Broken down and beaten up, the years have been long enough but I'm not dead.
0: I'm happy now, just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not faded, just been
1: faded, like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that drove a little too far and
0: see too much rain. As a child, I look back The night sky and wild wonder man and ride the bus, feel upset To think of all the
1: years I'd have to go through there I was still young I was still young